Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. With us today is Chad Sanderson. Chad Sanderson is passionate about data quality and fixing the muddy relationship between data producers and consumers. He is a former head of data at Convoy, a LinkedIn writer, and a published author. He lives in Seattle, Washington, and is the chief operator of the Data Quality Camp. Welcome, Chad. Great to have you on board today. Thanks, Ed. Uh, good to be here. And now, Chad, you, you talk a lot and are very passionate about data quality. There's a history there on why you, know, you picked out of all the things in the data ecosphere that you picked this you know, as, as you know, your bailiwick. What, what's that story? Why, why is this the topic, the topic that you are most passionate about? I think that data quality best represents the root cause of a core problem that I was trying to solve at Convoy, which was less of a technical problem and much more of a human problem. And you kind of introduced it a bit when you were giving my, my biography there in the beginning. But what I really care about is the relationships and how different people at a company work with work together in order to evolve their implementations of, of data. And I think when you have bad relationships or relationships that are, are broken in a company, the outcome of that is dead data quality issue. So even though my focus sort of more directly is, is data quality, I, I would say more indirectly, it's just because it's the best representation of a broken relationship in the way we work with data. You know, it is very interesting to me that when we've asked about data quality and why you're focused on that, that you choose a very human-centric way to describe, you know, what that, the tensions there versus a system-centric. So how, how is that you adopted, or why is it, if we're going to double-click on that, why is it that you would talk about data quality in terms of relationships and, and non-functioning or, or non-optimal relationships? Yeah, well, a, a little bit of this has to do with my personal background, I mm -hmm. think. I didn't come up through the data space conventionally. Mm -hmm. I originally was a journalist, and that was my first job out of, out of college. I flew to Southeast Asia, and I spent years writing as a journalist, and then I ended up joining a startup. And when I was at that startup, I did a lot of writing there as well. And that's sort of coincidentally when I discovered data. But as a journalist, the most interesting things about my work was talking to people and understanding what their stories were and what motivated them and what drove them to be successful or, or unsuccessful. And what carried me for most of my career was that I had the ability even if I was like a data scientist or an analyst, to go and have really, really good conversations with the people either on the business side that needed something, like they, they needed a, a model, or eventually when I joined uh, the infrastructure team, I could go and have those conversations with all of my own sort of quote-unquote customers who were mm -hmm. the consumers of the data most of the time. And what kept coming up over and over from these questions was that, no, no one ever really complained about the systems level capabilities of their data. They didn't say, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not getting the data fast enough, or 
I don't have a data catalog that, you know, lets me do all this really interesting searching or indexing, or my modeling tool isn't advanced enough. These were never the complaints that people have. The problems that everyone said was always focused on the relationships. Like, I, I can't find anyone who owns this data. I don't trust what this data means coming from someone else. When this data breaks, I can't find someone who's willing to step up and, and fix it. I always have to deal with the problem myself. And so there's this large category of human-related problems that I think isn't solved that well by a lot of the modern technology. And it left this huge gaping hole, I, I felt, that, that made my job as an, as an infrastructure professional very difficult to do, right? I just only focused on systems and ignored this sort of big black hole of a human problem. I, I wouldn't actually be fully solving the issue. Yeah, and that's an interesting way to do the observation. So it, it, I forgot to ask you, what kind of journalist were you in the beginning? It was investigative. Like what, you know, there's, I think journalists by nature are inquisitive and curious, but what was, what was your subspecialty inside journalism? I was a sports journalist, believe it sports or not. Sports journalist. I, I am sad I did not know that prior to the show, but I guess we all learn something by asking questions. In all of your kind of varied journeys from journalism to eventually on the technology side, you know, how did you learn? You, know, you made observations, and so you, you were both buoyed by your natural talents in, in asking questions, but also with taking a fresh look at this. Now, how did you start to map your observations to what people are doing in this new industry that you're part of? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it sounds extremely simple, but I just asked a lot of questions. Anytime mm -hmm. I didn't know something or I was confused about a working model or a working relationship, I just asked the question to understand it. I remember when um, the, the first infrastructure team I was on, the questions that I kept getting or the problems that I kept hearing from the data science team was, well, I need someone that is able to own data upstream of me. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, well, you know, I don't really hear software engineers asking and complaining about ownership, right? They write their code, they deploy their code, they review it on their team. So why is it that data teams are having this problem? And I would, I would just ask that. I'm like, why, why is it that you can't just own your own code? And they'll say, well, the, the, the problem is that, and, and I, I think it, it sounds like an obvious issue to someone who's on the outside looking in, maybe if you have years of experience as a, as a data engineer, which I didn't, I did not have that when I started, of course, but I would get an answer like, well, I, the reason that we can't own anything is because ultimately we're working from, you know, potentially dozens of derived tables and those tables were created long before we even got to the company. So it, it's not that we don't own it, it's that we can't own it. We didn't create all of this stuff. And if we want to be able to leverage the data infrastructure that exists, instead of recreate, like literally recreating the entire wheel, the whole data pipeline from beginning to end at a company that's, you know, decades old, then we have to take these dependencies. So it's less of a question actually of, can we find an engineer to build something brand new? And more of a question of there is this pipeline that already exists, that data is already flowing through. We just don't want it to change. And I, I, I think my sort of special skill was getting to the root cause of some of those complaints. And I wasn't biased by a lot of the, techno the, the, the technological solutions that are sort of out there these days. I could look at it with very fresh eyes and, and, and try to get to first principles as closely as I could. Yeah, I think 
most data professionals will agree is that the root challenges on data quality are more more centered around how we have chosen to work together and less on the systems themselves. So as you are you know, taking these early steps or you know, maybe even just the first couple of years, you know, who influenced your early thinking on data quality and what to do about it? Uh, I think one of the biggest people that influenced me was, uh, was Bill Inman. Bill Inman was someone that very early on I learned about and I, I read their work and I, I have a relationship with Bill now. And I loved, I loved the way that he thought about the problem and described the data warehouse because it was very, it was very different from more of the modern data stack. Where, so if, I, I was kind of seeing two things at the same time. Like on, on one side, I was seeing this is how data engineers think about infrastructure. We, we sort of talk about pipelines and we talk about transformation tools and ELT mm -hmm. and ETL and ingestion and, and, and compute, right? There's sort of this very technical conversation of how do you lay out the supply chain so the data moves like successfully from one point to another point. But Bill didn't really talk about that. Like what, what Bill really spoke about was how, like, what is the purpose of doing all of this in the first place? Like, you know, what, what? What is a, a data warehouse? It's like, well, it's a it's a it's an integration layer, and it's meant to represent the real world and as as accurately as possible, and then to provide this real world representation of the data to our to our customers. And that was interesting, and and it, it sort of made me think about the relationship that the human brain has with our eyes. I felt that the all of these sort of ingestion tools and transformation tools, like those represent the functional components of, of our body, right? Our eyes sort of mm -hmm. collect data, our ears collect data, our nose collects data. There's the ability to, to turn those signals into something that we can process and store in our brain. But the, the warehouse represents sort of the underpinnings of the brain itself. Like how do we actually manage this information? And I, I thought that was d just a, a really incredibly, it was a very interesting concept and I brought it to the team that I was working on at the time and nobody cared. No, no, no one, no one was interested in, in, in the way that we stored and worked with data. When I started talking about this more publicly, I found that there was two very distinct groups of people on the internet. There was one group of people that was essentially solely focused on the organizational model, right? How do you sort of, how, how do you structure the data and how do you structure the company so that it effectively works with data? That was kind of one side. And then on the other side, you had people that were really interested in the movement of data and the transformation of it. And do you use streaming versus batch and all of these types of questions. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't that much of a bridge in between. There wasn't anyone I, I found that was asking the question of, okay, we, we've got our model, we have our tools. How do, we, how do we actually use those both together effectively to change culture to, to be the, so, so that people work with data in, in the way that we want? And I, I eventually became what I think is that bridge. It's funny, you know, as much as, you know, the, the old quote of those who do not read history are doomed to repeat it. And, and I, I'm laughing a little bit to myself and, and others and similar age to me are going to laugh a little bit because, you know, the bridge you're talking about is a similar bridge to the bridge that needed to be built when we first started in data. It was just two different camps, right? <laughs> so it's the Kimball versus Inman camp. How should you model? One of the interesting things on those debates back in the day wasn't it was less about the movement of data and more just about approaches to modeling the data 
towards purpose and in, inside the organization. So the divide, while many fin, we all felt it was quite big, just because everybody wanted to pick sides in the early days of data warehousing, but the goals were closer. It's like what you're what you're bringing up is that we have less alignment on what the goal should be because you know that with the Kimball and Inman debates, it was it was wasn't about what the goal is; it's just how you get to the goal. And here you're saying that there's this engineering, which is more around the practice and the process of doing something irrespective of what the goal is. And you're, and you're talking about the other side is a goal. And how do you build the bridge so that both sides can be, take a bigger lift towards that? Over the last couple of years, what else have you used to kind of add or augment? What else in your steps towards being this great contributor in the thinking on data quality? You know, what were some of those other steps along the way on either people or ideas that influenced your thinking? So there is a, there is a, a concept that comes from Nintendo that I borrow a lot from, which is called lateral thinking with withered technology. And the, the basic idea behind this is that where real innovation comes from is when you're, you, you apply technology, or it doesn't necessarily need to be technology. It's really, it could be anything that's non-perishable, like an idea. When you apply these ideas or technologies to a new industry in a new context, meaning you're trying to tackle a similar, similar sort of problem. So Nintendo was famous, they would do this all the time. And what I have noticed in data is that the way that we traditionally approach a lot of these problems, I think, uh, fall into, into one of the two camps that I mentioned before. We either try to approach it from sort of a data organization perspective, like, oh, we, we want a structure, we want to have a data warehouse, or actually, no, we need a data vault, or actually, no, we, we need a data mesh, right? There's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just about sort of structuring our data in the right way, or it's about the, it's about the technology. It's like, oh, well, we actually need a, 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 we, we need a data lake. Uh, well, just kidding, we actually need a delta lake. Actually, just, just just kidding. We actually don't need either of those things. We just need something like Snowflake, or or we need Redshift, and we can dump all the data there. We can do the data. We can we can we can make that our lake, right? Like that's that's the problem. And I, I think a lot of other industries out there have realized that those two. It, it's not it's not just a dichotomy. Software engineering is one example where I I think they solved. I wouldn't say solve completely, but they definitely had a handle on this problem much earlier than data teams did. And you can see that if you look at some of the tools that they use. So for, for instance, GitHub or GitLab or these types of things, they're not, they're not just version control tools and they're not just tools for hosting code. They're actually collaboration and change management tools, right? Version control, again, looking at kind of first principles is really just a mechanism of rolling back to a previous change. A pull request is just a way to get a change reviewed by another person. Looking at a, a code diff is a way to visualize a, a, a change. So they spend a, a lot of time and effort and, and energy figuring out how to make changes in this iterative federated system. It, design is the same way, right? I would say the core design tool these days is, is Figma. And Figma is not just a great design tool, even though it is, it's actually a great collaboration tool. And if you have a great collaboration system, then you bring the, the two sides, uh, two different job functions together on a single platform. And that actually 
changes the dynamic of their relationship at the company. And the way that Figma does this is not only do they just give you a, give the UX designer a place to sort of host all of their designs or whatever, but it actually does the translation of those designs into CSS or React. So the engineer can speak their language and the UX designer can speak their language in the same space. And I've been very, you know, recently I've been very fascinated with Conway's law and Conway's law essentially says that the communication mechanism of the company ultimately reflects its, its design systems. And I see that as being one of the core problems in data right now is that you've got these two sides, the data producers and data consumers, they speak quite literally different languages. You know, you've got, you've got the app application developers and they're writing in TypeScript or JavaScript or, you know, whatever. And then you've got your data consumers and they're thinking in SQL. They might be thinking in, in Spark. Maybe they're thinking in Python. And there's this huge gulf in between them of like data kind of flows in and it's intended for one purpose over here. And then ultimately it gets transformed a bunch of times and it gets used for another purpose over here. And if you're kind of missing that bridge, which connects the two sides that allows them to say, hey, you know, I'm using data that you've given me and here's how I'm using it. And this is how important it is. And this is why it's important. Then that, that data producer lacks agency to make good decisions. There is no way to do change management because you don't even know what needs to be changed in the first place or what it has to change to. So yeah, that, that's kind of how I'm thinking about the problem these days and where I'm spending most of my time and energy. So you mentioned, and, and this has been an interesting problem that a lot of us looked at, have looked at for a while, and I love how you put it, data consumers and data producers speak entirely different languages, right? It's, it's the age the age-old problem between those that need to use the thing and those that know how to build the thing. And as you mentioned, app dev has gotten closer to bridging that gap. One of the things that we've noticed, and I'm curious your take on this, in, in trying to build that common language, you know, what the, um, the Rosetta Stone between the groups, right? It, when you think about app dev, it's easier, or some of our experience has been, it's easier to describe how I'm going to interact with something. Because I'm, you know, in app dev, I usually am performing an action or workflow. And so in my mind, I'm like visualizing that I can describe a need. Whereas in data, I'm trying to describe a potential decision I need to make or a potential insight, but I don't know what that is yet without like seeing the data. And so some of those early gaps have always been around, well, I know the questions I might have, I know what they might look like, but also once I see information like on a run chart or Gantt or whatever it is, I might change that. How do you, what have you seen as successful ways in bridging those kind of nebulous conversations? So I, I think it's a, it's a very good question. I, there's sort of two, there's sort of two relevant problems, I think, that's meaningful to talk about there. The first relevant problem has to do with environments, in my mm -hmm. opinion, where the way, what you were talking about of, I don't necessarily know whether or not the data is going to be useful, nor how it's going to be useful until I get my hands on it and I start exploring with it. And that's a bit of a chicken and egg problem because you can't have, you know, you, you can't have data quality if you're still trying to figure out what yeah. the data is going to be useful for. You don't know, quality could change depending on what the use case is. And I think that problem really comes down to a difference in how data and software engineers think about uh, developer environments. 
in software engineering, uh, to your point, you kind of know what the output of the application looks like. You know what it needs to do. It's very functional. And so a developer environment is a place where you can test that function in a safe space before you deploy it to a, to a quote-unquote customer. But in data, like you said, we don't really care about this so much. It, the, the issue is more exploration and experimentation. The data team needs access to the data so that they can figure out what is useful for the first place and how the data should be used. And then once we've effectively answered the question and we've deemed it to be useful, our version of production is then pushing it out to other potential consumers of that, of, of that question that could make their own decisions on top of it. And so I think that this is, this is at its core, an environment difference where what we need one environment that is designed explicitly for experimentation and being able to very quickly root through the data where the burden of data quality, uh, uh, the, the, the cost that comes with managing data quality, which is a, the speed cost, is, is not there. It's more focused on, hey, we're just replicating data from these various places, and maybe we have some relatively light guardrails and a little bit of governance and enough sort of descriptions of what the data is to be dangerous, but ultimately the focus is on exploration in the academic sense. So that's sort of one, one thing that I found. The, the other thing that I found is I think that the, what, what separates that first environment from a production environment is the quality, right? Like that's actually what makes something quote unquote production. It's the quality and, and the governance. It, it, the, the, the transition moves from can I just sort of root around and find something interesting to can I trust this? So the, the, the trusting element of the data is, is generally what, what I found, what, what turns it into something that is production grade. And so the question is, what, what are sort of the, the functional requirements, the, the, the tactical requirements of a data asset becoming trustworthy? And in my opinion, those are uh, number one, ownership, uh, number two, stability, and, and, and number three, accuracy. And I think that governance has to be iterative, and this is a subject that we could expand on a lot, but I, I don't think that you get all three of those to the same degree from the very first day that you, you have production quality. And I, and I think trying to do that is impossible because you're, you're always going to be learning about the state of the data over time. You might learn on, on day one, you might feel that, oh, I only need 2% of nulls in this column, and that's okay. But maybe six months down the road, you realize, oh, actually, I, I, I really need 1% of nulls. So like the, the way that we interface with the data is going to change as we learn more about it. And so what's really essential is to, is to have this foundational governance that you can then start to scale as the needs arise. So th th that's sort of how I, how, how I try to think about those two, those problems. Yeah, it's interesting. I loved how you put environments because data does have a very different environment purpose than app dev right there is this notion that even once data is quote unquote in production that there is still experimental uses for that data whether that data is fully governed fully audited or fully managed to a degree you know in past customers we sometimes before some of the the more modern tools we would call those sandbox environments you know, but the say, hey, we're going to, here's what the gold standard reports look like. There's a serpent templating that makes that available. But if then you would visually know as soon as you're looking at ex exploratory analytics versus like, you know, the gold standard reports. But 
back to what you first talked about, which was the relationship side of it, those things never really stuck until there was this idea of experimentation and innovation inside an organization. You know, that, that, you know, you mentioned governance is iterative, but a lot, a lot of this is iterative. So what do you see as getting in the way of governance being iterative or innovation being iterative inside an organization? I think a lot of it comes down to visibility. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 to me, the, the visibility is the core problem in this, you know, weird sort of messed up relationship that exists today between the, the two sides. If, if I'm a software engineer, your average software engineer at a company and I own a service and a database and I'm, you know, have a bunch of features that I'm supporting, the likelihood that I understand with any clarity who is using my data and why they're using it and where it's going and which use cases are important and which are not important, the likelihood that I really clearly understand that is unbelievably low. I've talked to hundreds of software engineers and I met almost zero that have that understanding. And the interesting thing is that they want it. Like they all want to understand, hey, I, I would love to know where my data is going and who has mm-hmm. access to it and what they're using it for, but no one tells me. Or at least no one tells me until something breaks, until something changes. And at that point, it's, it's too late because I've been working on this feature for the last three months and you can't come out of the woodwork and tell me at, you know, on the, on the day that I've actually deployed it, then now I have to roll it back and I have to take someone else into consideration that I've, I potentially have never even met before in the organization. Like, that's just, it's, a, it's an unreasonable expectation. And so today, all these data producers are sort of operating in this, in this black box where they, they don't know what happens to the data after it leaves them. They just know what it's like for, for their purpose. And having that visibility, that, that visibility is the first step to culture change. If I, as a software engineer, if I, if I know that if I make this change, I am going to blow up the dashboard that the CMO is using every week to make marketing decisions, I'm going to take that a little bit more seriously. Like, I'm going to be <laughs> a bit more thoughtful about how I modify a schema or how, or how I update business logic. If I know that a team, some machine learning team, has taken a dependency on, on my data and they've built a model that's worth $100 million and it's keeping the company afloat, I'm probably going to communicate a lot more when there's new data that's available for them to use. I'm not just going to append a column and never speak to anybody and, and leave it at that, right? But if, if, I don't, if I don't have the awareness that I actually don't have agency, I, I can't, as a producer, I can't even make those decisions in the first place. Now, it's very interesting you bring up the visibility piece because then that r- ranges a whole new sets of questions because visibility requires a more holistic view, right? So even, even on that app dev, even if I'm not appending a column, maybe I'm just doing a new enumerated list on an existing thing. So now like the, the end state of the data, the distributions are entirely different with little to no change to the app or, you know, the shape of the data. The, the physical shape of the, you know, the metadata coming in. Now, the shape of the actual data coming in changes drastically. Right? Or potentially, you know, app dev, no changes whatsoever. Business decides to use the application differently. I mean, you see this as, you know, the CRM tool, Salesforce is, you know, users of Salesforce are famous for this. It's like, okay, well, yeah, but from like September, of, you know, 2023 to, or 2022 to now, this column means this. You should know that, right? 
Yeah, so all of this has now pushed or pulled you to land on certain approaches that you're espousing today to folks when you work with them on solving data quality. What are what are some of those, you know, methods and things that you're coaching and teaching clients and your, you know, your peers and and all your speeches? What are those today and how did you come to land on these on on these newer methods? Yeah. So I would say the the biggest and the, the method that I'm most well known for these days is this idea of a data contract. Mm-hmm. And the the contract is a relationship. It's an agreement between a producer and a consumer. Um, it's similar to a, a data API, but it essentially describes the state of the data that needs to exist in order for a data consumer to continue to do their work effectively. And there's been a lot of confusion about these terms, which is one of the reasons I'm writing a book. I mean, anything that's something relatively new gets introduced, everybody kind of puts their own spin on it. And, you know, I have my own spin on it and I think I'm right. <laughs> but a, a lot of people have other, they, they have other ideas about that. But in, in my view, the contract is a, a, a communication mechanism. And the purpose of it is it, it actually should be initiated by the consumer of the data in the same way that a product manager might create a set of requirements for a software engineer, where the data team says, hey, look, I've, you know, I've gone through this exploratory phase. I have found some interesting use case of, for the data. Here's how I am using it. Here's what I believe that it should look like. And that agreement or that expectation is codified. And there is some level of enforcement. And I prefer doing that enforcement through checks during uh, CICD. There's a lot of reasons why I prefer doing it through CICD, but the main reason is because during the pull requests, especially, is when a software engineer is explicitly asking for feedback about changes that they are making to their data. That is literally the perfect time where if something is changing in a way that is not good for a data consumer, that it makes sense to interject with all of this meaningful context. And so, I mean, we could talk about what an implementation looks like, but at the high level, What I want the producers, the software engineers who work at these companies to see is I'm making a change either to business logic or to schema. And I see at the time of the pull request, hey, you shouldn't do that because the CMO has a dashboard that is using data and that dashboard is going to be broken. Here is the dashboard. You can go and look at it. Here is the person that actually owns this data, uh, who, who who owns the view or whatever it might be and then tagging the owner of that view in the PR so that they can have a conversation, right? The purpose of the contract is relationship building. It's creating that connection with two sides and then providing the context so that there's actually something meaningful to, to, to talk about. That is what I have seen to be one of the biggest incremental generators of culture change in a company because all of a sudden you have these, you have these data producers that were for all intents and purposes, kind of walking around in the dark in terms of like their knowledge of how the data was being used. And then it was like turning on a light switch. Now you have people talking about, oh, wait, don't do this. Like, I, like, I, I need the data to look like this. And I, I would like that. And, and, you know, please hold off because it's, this is really going to break me. And oh, this, is gonna, this is really going to hurt me. And once you have that initial conversation, you've now rooted that conversation in the mind of the producer. So the next time that they're going to build a new feature, they're going to have the downstream customer in mind. They're not just going to build it completely ignorant of who is using their data. And like, that's this type of thing that starts a positive cycle, in my opinion. 
So in speaking of starting positive cycles and keeping those going, Chad, there's a lot that you do in the community. So as we were just about to start recording, you mentioned you just got back from speaking. So you do a lot of speaking, you do a lot of writing, you're writing a book, but then there's other things that you do to get uh, both the messaging and awareness and really bring more people because it's wonderful to see how many more people are coming to data and coming to um, our field in the last 20 years. And, and, but talk a little bit about the, uh, the things that you're doing. There's a whole huge community that you have on Slack now. Uh, so how, how can people be engaged and you know, meet other like-minded quality professionals? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do have a community called datequality.camp backslash Slack. It is free. I built a community because when I was at Convoy and I had a lot of questions about how to manage data quality at a, in a federated way at a large scale company with, you know, a thousand software engineers, I didn't find a lot of good information on the internet on, on how to do that that wasn't coming from a vendor. And I don't mind vendor content. I think that vendors uh, can definitely provide like very useful things to say, but it obviously is like a they will provide a take on the world that's that's very beneficial for them, right? Yeah. And what, what I cared about was, what are all of the components of data quality that I needed to think about? How do I handle the cultural piece, like these sorts of questions? And, and I, just, I just couldn't find it anywhere. And what I wanted most was to talk to people who were in positions like me that had been through the process, that had done it, that had rolled out these implementations successfully and were willing to give me some feedback on my own ideas. And so I put together a group of maybe 50 of my friends who had done this and, and we just started having the conversations in Slack. And then I started inviting people that, that I knew from LinkedIn and elsewhere that I thought would be good additions. And it's, it's grown over the past six or seven months to about 8,000, 8,000 going on 9,000 people, lots of awesome conversations in there. And it's just a place where you can ask a question and get you know relatively unbiased answers on how how people solve these data engineering and, and data quality challenges they have. Well, fantastic. So, Chad, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to reach out? So you can you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm super active there. Just type in Chad Sanderson, and if you're in data, I'm probably going to pop up and be the very first search. Uh, and if you want to reach out over email and you want to have any any conversation about data or data contracts or data quality or iterative data governments or whatever it might be, my email is csanderson.data at uh, gmail.com. Awesome. And Chad, what, do you have a timeline for your book? Yes. So hopefully early next year um, is the timeline. We, we kick things off with O'Reilly back in June and I'm, we're just kind of steadily cranking it out. Okay, so you say do you mean do you have collaborators in this book? I do. One is uh, Mark Freeman. Uh, Mark is another uh, LinkedIn personality, but he's a he's a data scientist and he he's also a writer as well. So he's he's great. He sort of is approaching it from a slightly different lens. I'm looking at it more from infrastructure, and he's looking at it more from like the data science uh, practitioner. All right. Well, this sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to this. Well, Chad, I appreciate your time today. It's been fantastic having you on. Thanks, Sid. Great being here. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host, Lee Harper, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. 
Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.